Would you turn to Mark chapter 10? We're going to look at verses 46 to 52. Mark chapter 10, verses 46 to 52. If you would turn or swipe there. Here's what the Gospel of Mark says, chapter 10. Then they came to Jericho. As Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, which means son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside, begging. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, Call him. So they called to the blind man, Cheer up, on your feet, he's calling you. And throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked him. The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus. Your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. Lord, we are so grateful for your word. We're so grateful for Jesus, our King. We're so grateful that blind people have received sight in your power and through their incredible and insane seemingly faith in you. Lord, there are many that I'm thinking of in my webs of relationship who are blind. Perhaps they're blind to the reality of who you are, or they're blind to the reality of who they are. They're not thinking straight because of some circumstance or addiction or sin. And I think of so many others in this room who are affected by those begging that they would see. Perhaps many in this room tonight feel more like Bartimaeus, blind, broke, begging on the side of the road. I pray that they would hear your words to come to you and to hear your question, what do you want me to do for you? I pray our church would hear that. And we would be just so crazy as to say that you'd give us sight and vision again. Thank you for this time. Please bless it. Please speak to us through your word and your presence. Amen. This summer we've been looking at two questions. You've heard them, you know them, you're tired of them. It's who are we called to be? And church, what are we called to do. This is a good time this summer to kind of settle in and ask these questions because I really get the sense that our church is starting to live and look and feel differently in its own skin. You know what? The thing about any church is that they're going to be different on this day than they were this day in history a year ago or this day five years ago or this day 10 years ago. And here's why. Because churches, as much as we like to try and wrangle them, as much as we like to try and 
categorize them. As much as we try to nail the churches down to a system of belief or a way of doing ministry, as much as we try to pin churches down, it's exceedingly difficult, and here's why, because the church is a people. And really, on some of days, we have to grant that churches are organizations because they need structure, because there's a few of us here, and it's good to have structure. But it's not just an organization, it's also an organism, and organisms are living and breathing, and sometimes they smell. But the thing about churches that are not just organizations but organisms is that they're made of organic matter, and it's people. And the reason they're different from year to year to year to year is because the people change. Some go and some come. And so I always think about this age-old question in philosophy about an old wooden ship. I want you to imagine an old wooden pirate ship. And I want you to imagine it's that christening ceremony, and they say, Bon Voyage, SS Providence, and this wooden ship sets sail. And let's say this ship set sail 11 years ago. And this ship set sail, and, you know, a week later, all of a sudden, they kind of bump into something, and, man, like four of the side panels get kind of scraped up. So then you've got to dock it, and you've got to shift and, and work and get those new boards to replace the old ones. And then you go along, and a week or two later, there's a tear in the mast, and you need to get the mast and the sail set back again. And all of a sudden... You know, when you go on for 11 years and the old adage or the philosophical question posed is, what if after 11 years every single piece and part of that ship gets replaced? What if from the top, top to the biddity bottom, I just made that up, every single board and piece gets changed? Is it still the same ship? Is it still the SS Providence? And so I err on the side of those philosophers or folks who say yes, because there's one thing you cannot change, and that's the logbook. And if you're more of a Star Trek fan, you think about Stardate, Captain's Log. Because even if the Enterprise or the old wooden SS Providence has changed in so many ways with so many people, with so many even beliefs, with so many ways of doing and being, is it still the same church? I say yes, because we have a history. We have a story. We have a logbook that's a testimony every step of the way of, I think, calling out to Jesus and also being called by Jesus. The constant through Providence Community Church is not our theology, because good heavens, has that changed? It's not our affiliations. It's not even, you know, our, our website and system of belief. We don't have a doctrinal statement. We have convictions, and those have changed. But we have the Apostles' Creed we just recited. But that puts us in league with, I don't know, a billion and change more people that look and feel and smell different in all different kinds of ships and organisms. Providence has changed, but it's still the same providence. And so these questions are important. What are we called to be and what are we called to do? But they're not just for the summer, they're for always. Because we always need to have this sense of calling out to Jesus and saying, help us, lead us, guide us, save us, 
Help Robin. Help Aaron and Amanda like we prayed at the beginning of the service. But it's also after we've called out to stand before Jesus and say, okay, now what? Because he is going to call us into new life to take a next step day after day after day. So even though things change and people come and go, our life as a church is made in the journey. It's like a pathway. Some call it a desire path that you see in the grassy area. And it's a pathway that's made by walking. Sometimes, you know, churches can sit there and systematize and categorize everything about it. But at the end of the day, we're an organism that's living into who we are. And I get a sense that now, at this moment, we're kind of settling in after some growing pains and feeling some new ones as we begin to say, hmm, this is who we are. And also saying, uh, this is who we are. But we're always calling out and we're always being called. So tonight, I don't know how long I'm going to preach because I don't want to spoil this beautiful passage. But I want to see a beggar and learn that rhythm of calling out and being called. And I want to give us space tonight to pray for a few moments, to call out to Jesus and even perhaps hear him call us to a next step together. And that together is key because we've said we are a church gathering around Jesus, always calling out to him. We're following Jesus together on the road, as we're going to see tonight with a crowd of people on the road to where? If you have your Bible, you'll see it in that next section, chapter 11, to Jerusalem, to the cross. But even Jesus doesn't go alone. So we follow him together with the crowd. And then we go and proclaim the reign of Jesus to the world. Incidentally, Mark has that as he enters into Jerusalem in his next section. So that's where we're headed, Lord willing, and let's get into it and look at a beggar who called out to Jesus and was called to him, and perhaps we can find along the way how he might be calling you and us together. You with me? Good. My voice hasn't given up yet, so let's keep rolling. Look back at verse 46. They came to Jericho, and as Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city... So there's a big gaggle of folks. It's not just Jesus and the 12. There are many people who are following him. And this is coming right on the heels of two of the disciples, even in the midst of the crowd, cornering Jesus and saying, hey, we need to ask you a favor. And Jesus says this phrase, what do you want me to do for you? And they say something to the effect of, when you are really king, I mean really king, let us sit right up there at that top. Let us sit right there at your right hand. One here, one there. Man, that would be so rock and roll and awesome. And so you have this crowd of people and two disciples asking of Jesus to be elevated above them, to be elevated above all others, to sit right there in that place of honor, kind of like we talked about last week, to sit next to Jesus, to single themselves out above the crowd. And Mark then 
after Jesus asks of them, what do you want me to do for you? Mark puts the last healing of his gospel with a blind beggar on the road outside of town, on the way to Jerusalem, on the way to a cross, and Jesus will ask him the very same question, what do you want me to do for you? And it has everything to do with how he calls out to him and how Jesus calls him to himself. So they're on the way out, this crowd and these disciples. They're leaving the city. And it says there's a blind man, Bartimaeus, which means what? Son of Timaeus. Thank you, Mark. I didn't know what Bartimaeus meant. So Bart was sitting by the roadside begging. This was common practice. You see it at intersections in Dallas and you know parts of the Metroplex all over. This is a practice that's happened. And it's really strategic for Bartimaeus because when they're on the road to Jerusalem, well, people go up to Jerusalem because they're going to festivals, religious festivals. So they sit out on the roadside to try and cash in on people going to worship God. And so what these people do and what Bartimaeus did, because we see... Um, he has a cloak. Later, they lay their cloaks out on the ground, and it becomes for them their place of business where they spread out on the road, they sit down, and it's a place where people can toss their coins, their money, their food, their whatever, onto the cloak. It's, it's, it's a cloak instead of like a baseball cap. It's a cloak instead of like a Wendy's cup. And so what happens is he lays the cloak out, and all these people are coming, and you need to know that it's not just Bartimaeus. And you need to know that his cloak was not just his place to receive what people give to him. His cloak was also his house. It was his everything. Because when the day was over, he would gather up what he had, and it was his daily bread for that day. Then he'd roll over, and it would give him warmth and shelter at night. It was his everything, and it was the everything to all the other people lining the roadside as Jesus and the disciples and the crowd came from Jericho out of the city and into Jerusalem to the cross. So what separated Bartimaeus from the crowd? What was different about him? Why did Jesus and these people pay any attention to him? Well, you see Bartimaeus in verse 47, it said, When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, so this is really keen, because Jesus has been going around all this region telling people that the reign of God is broken in upon them. And he's not just saying it, he's showing it. And so surely Bartimaeus has heard that other blind people have been healed. So you can see why Bartimaeus really wants to separate himself and really wants to give it his all and really wants to see if Jesus can do for him what he's done for others. He's heard the stories, and so then he cries out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. This prayer, <clears throat> before we talk about what it means in that context, I want to first say just how profound it's been for an entire stream of the Christian faith for centuries. We all talk about the Protestant Reformation in the 1500s, or, uh, you know, in, in the, well, now I can't even remember. Now I've just pulled a blank. So we'll edit this part out. I'm going to remember when the Protestant Reformation happened. But before that, in the 10 hundreds, what happened was there was a schism from the Roman Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church. And in the Eastern Orthodox Church, 
This prayer, Jesus, they say now, Son of God, have mercy on me, is so incredibly formative to them, it's not even funny. If you asked an Eastern Orthodox priest, what does it mean to be a Christian? They would say, that's somebody who prays the Jesus prayer. And it's beautiful because we can all be like Bartimaeus begging on the side of the road. And the beautiful thing about that prayer is it ain't one of them big, lofty religious prayers. It is one of those that you breathe in, Jesus, Son of God, have mercy on me. Jesus, Son of God, have mercy on me. Jesus, Son of God, have mercy on me. Sometimes it's just enough to sit in a chair and repeat that, breathe that, and it puts you into proper perspective because Jesus is the Son of David, the Son of God, but you're inviting Him to have mercy on you, and it reminds you that you are no more than a beggar in many times in your life. And especially you were a beggar when Jesus first met you. And before he called you brother, and Abba called you son. Jesus' prayer, Bartimaeus' call, orients us to who God is, who Jesus is, son of God, son of David, and who we are, a beggar at the gates of the kingdom. Son of David meant that Jesus is king. Son of David meant that he is the one that's coming to reign on David's throne. I imagine that after this scene takes place, I won't ruin the story for you yet, but I'll tell you that Bartimaeus will join this gaggle of people and he will go into Jerusalem triumphantly singing the praises of the king. Would you look in chapter 11 at verse 10? I like to imagine that Bartimaeus, after he had been screaming this over and over above the crowd, when he joins the crowd, I imagine that he tells them, hey, I've got a great tune to sing for Jesus when he comes in riding on a donkey to Jerusalem as king. I'm, I think we should sing and shout this. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Chapter 11, verse 10. This is a royal enthronement place. The Jesus prayer orients us to who Jesus is. He is not just Jesus of Nazareth who does magic tricks. He's the king that was promised. He's the son of David. So he's screaming this. And then what happens in verse 48? Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet. Could these disciples really let themselves be distracted? Jesus has predicted that he's going to Jerusalem to die. Do we need some blind beggar coming along our gathering, our people? Because he's going to want food. He's going to want clothes. He's going to talk our ears off about how sick he is and blind he is. Give me a freaking break. Do they even have time for him, especially now? So they're rebuking him and telling him to be quiet. And it breaks my heart because I think about how many people are so wrapped up in following Jesus in all the ways they think is the right way that they miss the beggars on the road. I even wonder about our worship gatherings, our missional communities, even in ways we're unaware. How do we miss the beggars on the road? How do we miss the beggars in our lives? We well, say, I don't know any blind people. Adam, I don't even know any spiritually blind people. I don't know people who are lost in darkness. Well, then you're blind too. We need to be aware, but we also need to give these disciples a break because we can so easily silence those who are in the most need because we fear 
if they walked with us, man, they would just take and take and take. But we follow a Savior who gives and gives and gives. So he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Because he's thinking, I cannot wait till tomorrow. I don't know if he's coming back. And how many of us in our spiritual lives, when we're blind, we're broken, and we say, well, I will start tomorrow. It's like a diet. Well, the diet starts Monday. What if we are blinded, broken, we have blind spots in our lives, and we say, well, I will work on that when? I think about when I went through a 12-step recovery process, and I was not like those 12-steppers, don't you know? I was a good, nice, clean, not really that addicted to stuff kind of guy. But I go to my first lesson after a meeting, and I see that it says, write out all those ifs in that first lesson. All those ifs that you kept telling yourself and others. Well, if this happens, then I will go and get right. Then I will go and go to Jesus and get right. And I realized that I had such a laundry list of if this, then that, or when I'm, then this. Well, then maybe tomorrow this, or maybe next month when this, or maybe when this check comes in, I can give, or maybe when, you know, this person, I meet this homeless person, I can do that, but maybe not my coworker because, man, I see them a lot more than that homeless person. So I have all these when I'ms and I have all these ifs and I can find myself in this story not being a disciple that says, come, let's go. I have the disciple that says, no, 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 no. And I can be a Bartimaeus who can say, ah, no, 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 no. I'll catch him next time. What if he had put it off? Well, he didn't. And it was good he didn't because look what happens in verse 49. Jesus stopped. And he said, call him. You see, what happened was... Jesus said, call him after Bartimaeus had been calling and calling and calling and calling and calling. It's like Jesus had an appointment that was open and it's as if this son of David caught his ears. And so the disciples who had been rejecting him, rebuking him, then it says they called to the blind man, cheer up on your feet. Before they were saying, shut up, stay on your feet. Cheer up on your feet. He's calling you. He's calling you. I love that. I got so stuck by that phrase. And I just thought, what is he going to do? Verse 50, throwing his cloak aside, throwing his everything aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. I want to stop here. Because five minutes ago, the crowd thought he was a casualty. He was a heavy load. And I want to tell you something. You're not what the crowd thinks you are. You're not what your, your voice in your head says you are. It's blindness to see yourself as a reject. It's blindness to see yourself as that desperately alone. It's blindness to see yourself as not good enough. It's blindness to see yourself as a screw-up. It's blindness to see yourself as never getting over this, never stopping that, never being free of this, never ceasing to hear this. That is blindness, and I want you to hear Jesus call you. I want you to know that you're not what the crowd says of you. 
And he is calling our church to continually call out and hear his call. What is he calling you to? What is he calling our church to? You know, these questions, he's, what has he called us to be? What has he called us to do? This is that rhythm of sitting, and it doesn't matter if we're not going to him. So Bartimaeus threw off the cloak, refusing to believe what the crowd says about him. He stumbles and staggers because, hello, I'm not being funny, but the dude is blind, and he leaps up, so he's not even waiting for people to help him, I'm guessing. And he runs to the feet of Jesus, and he's grasping for him. He's clawing at him because he cannot believe that Jesus, son of David, is actually having mercy on him. And he goes to him. He threw it all away. He had a ridiculous, relentless trust in who Jesus is, son of David. And he goes all in when Jesus asks him this pivotal question that you need to underline, highlight. Or better yet, let it soak deeply into your bones. Imagine what Jesus looks like as he looks at the blind man called Bartimaeus. Not what the crowd thinks, but Jesus looks at him deeply with compassion and he says, what do you want me to do for you? It's the same question he asked of James and John just the scene before. It's the exact same question because Jesus didn't rebuke his disciples when he said, what can I do for you? He didn't rebuke the disciples, it says here, when they were telling Bartimaeus to sit down and be quiet. But Jesus, with just as much compassion for the disciples who had it all right, had just as much compassion with the same question to the person who in their minds had it all wrong. And he looks and he says, what do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked him. And here's where we look at it and we say, what a dumb question, Jesus. This dude is blind. Are you serious? What a dumb question, Jesus. This dude is homeless. What a dumb question, Jesus. Because this dude has nothing to eat tonight. What a dumb question. But the blind man said... An even dumber response. Rabbi, teacher. It's so crazy that he calls him son of God and teacher. This shows you what he thinks of Jesus just based on the stories he's heard from a man he's never seen. His response is so crazy. He says, I want to see. He didn't ask for money. He didn't ask for a double cheeseburger. He says, I want to see. This question is so important that Jesus asked, and it's so dangerous, and here's why. Because we can be like the disciples and ask for the wrong thing. And here's the thing. We may not think we're asking for the wrong thing. We think we're asking for the right thing. But I wonder if what we're asking sidesteps all that God wants to do in us and through us. What can we learn from this formation of suffering in the valley. What would we learn if we lived our whole life beside still waters? Would we learn to trust Him if we're in the raging waters or if we were just in the still waters? This is a dangerous question to ask. So much we can sidestep. But He goes all in. What a dangerous thing to tell Jesus He needs. Because what if Jesus can't do it? But here's what He's thinking. I've heard the stories. Jesus says two things. Strong enough to give me sight. 
And he's merciful enough to actually do it because he's stopped and he's looking at me. Jesus, because he's blind, probably has his hand on his shoulder. And it made me think of the words I prayed earlier. I think it's in Psalm 62 where it says, One thing I've, you've, you've heard me. You, one thing you've told me and two things I've heard that strength and power belongs to you and your love is everlasting. This is how we pray. Let me tell you how we pray. You want a you quick little recap of school of prayer? This is what we're doing for six weeks. Here's how you pray. You pray trusting that God can. And you pray resting on who God is. You pray trusting that He's strong enough to do what you ask. And you pray knowing that He loves us and He's merciful and He may do it. And so when you know He's strong enough and you believe that He can do something as crazy as receive sight or heal brain tumors, when you think that He's that strong enough and have that faith and it doesn't happen, well then see point two. His love is faithful. His love is everlasting. He is merciful. And something Kathy Kiesler said from a new community that struck me, it was, an, it, was a, it was a comment just she made on a side that really struck me, and this has taught me how to pray. She said, you know, and if it doesn't go our way, perhaps God saw something down the road that I didn't, and he is protecting and forming me today through it. Can I say that again? Perhaps God saw something down the road that I can't, and he's doing this so that he might form me and show me how much he loves me today. We pray because Jesus is strong and he's merciful. And I don't know if he'll cure cancer for that loved one. I don't know if he'll rescue them from addiction. But I do know that we can learn from a blind beggar that if we keep calling out, one day he will call us and he will perhaps even say to us that most dangerous and important question, what do you want me to do for you? And would we with enough faith be so crazy and blind in the eyes of Jesus to believe that he can actually do what we ask him to do? Could our church actually believe and try to see through our blindness that better days and best days and great days or even good days are ahead of us? Not that they're better from behind. Not that they're better than the past qualitatively, but that they're better than some of the hard days when we just feel like we're sick and blind and what's going on. Could we actually believe that God can rescue people out of darkness and blindness and into light in this church? Can we believe he's merciful and loves us enough to do it? He went all in and Jesus granted him what he asked. He says, go in verse 52 as we close. Your faith has healed you. And here's the trick. Bartimaeus got what he wanted. <clears throat> he could have gone wherever he wanted after that. He could have walked down the road and said, thank you so much, Jesus. That was really awesome. You should keep doing that. That's a neat trick. Thank you very much but I'm good. I'm going to go get something to eat and I'm going to go get a job because I can see now. But what did he do? Mark, as he likes to do in his gospel, keeps the action and he says, immediately he received his sight. Now would you stop there because Mark can let us rush past it. I asked you how do you think Jesus looked at Bartimaeus. Now I'm going to ask you, 
How do you think Bartimaeus looked at Jesus when the first thing he saw was the face of Jesus, son of David, who had mercy on him? I think even though his blind, his blind eyes regained sight, they were probably still blurry, wet with tears because the first thing he laid eyes on was Jesus. And in my darkest times and in, in the places where I just wonder about all this, I will myself through my blurry eyes, my blind eyes, to see the face of Jesus. And I try to make the day when I will see him face to face so present, as present as possible, even just through a lens or a glass or a mirror darkly. I try to make his face so present to me because I want to see, even though I'm blind. And I want him to ask of me, what do you want me to do for you? And I want to muster up all the faith and hope and courage I have and lay it at his feet and hear him say, your faith has healed you. And give me the strength, Jesus, then to get up and leave all my stuff and go where you go. Because it's better to go with you seeing than to go back where I was and put the scales back on my eyes. Helen Keller I love this. Even if she wasn't a blind woman or deaf woman, this is a beautiful quote. She says, whether love makes one blind, I don't know. But that love can help one see, I and others have experienced that a thousand times. You see, love helps us see the healer. And loves helps, love helps us see the healed. Because let me tell you who you were. You were Bartimaeus, cast aside, beggar on the road, could not see, but a foot in front of you. But you were called and you were welcomed and you were healed. And there was a moment in your life, I'm betting, where you looked Jesus in the face and it looked a lot clearer than it does now. And perhaps this church, you feel like maybe a time or two ago, we had looked Jesus in the face and the way forward looked a lot clearer than it does now. But I'm here to tell you that the same Jesus who spoke and asked the question then is still speaking and asking it of us tonight. And so none of this stuff we talked about in our church in this series matters. The Jesus church, believing church, belonging church, blessing church, praying, worshiping, welcoming. And I had every intention to go through and just tick away each one of those and kind of recap it for us, but I didn't feel like doing it because you know what? None of it matters if we're not calling out to Jesus and being called and following him together. And so that's all I got before my voice gives out. And so before your voice gives out, I'm going to read this passage again, and I would like for you, as John plays quietly and we put an image up on the screen, would we just spend the last few minutes listening to the words of Jesus, putting ourselves in the story. Think about who you are on this evening, on a Mediterranean night, with the din and roar of the crowd back in the city of Jericho and along the road, everyone hollering and screaming and people anxious as they go to Jerusalem, the disciples and Jesus setting their face toward that holy city to do work, against the powers of darkness, then to hear all the beggars along the side of the road pleading with their arms outstretched? Are you in the crowd observing all this? Are you on the side of the road with the blind people believing what the crowd says of you? Are you close to Jesus, right behind His shoulder? Are you far from Him, 
just looking up in the distance to where you can barely make out what he's saying. Who are you as we listen and read? Where is Jesus? And perhaps you would even hear him as he asks of you. They came to Jericho. As Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, which means son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet. But he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Can you see Jesus? He stopped and he said, Call him. So they called to the blind man, Cheer up on your feet. He's calling you. And throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and he came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you? The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see go, said Jesus. Your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. Would you take a breath? Would you breathe in Jesus, Son of God, and breathe out, have mercy on me. Where are you in that scene? Who's with you in your heart at this moment? What person? deep in the eyes of Bartimaeus and he's looking deep in the eyes of you and would you dare to let yourself in that place of imagination in your heart would you dare to hear what do you want me to do for you be honest that he's strong enough to carry that for you. 
Do you believe him when he says, I love you? Is he smiling at you? And will you follow him? Not knowing what will happen, but knowing that he is strong, that he is love and that He will never leave you. And He is calling you.